My name is Wade. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. So we've been going through the Gospel of John, and uh, today we're going to go through the final hours before what we call the Passion, the, the suffering of Jesus. And soon, he'll be alone in the garden. Soon, Jesus is going to be arrested and put on trial. Soon, Jesus will be crucified in the story. And he spends his final evening with his disciples They get together for one last meal together. And we're going to read the text that this this, uh, story is in. This is in your bulletin, John chapter 13, verses 18 through 30. Follow along in your bulletin. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you, this now before it takes place that when it does take place you may believe that I am he truly truly I say to you whoever receives the one I send receives me and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me after saying these things Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified truly truly I say to you one of you will betray me the disciples looked at one another uncertain of whom he spoke One of the disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Jesus had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. And this is the word of God. If you were here last week, you listened to Pastor Michael's sermon on the washing of the disciples' feet. This is an act of Jesus, an act of love and service to his friends before they dine. And we read in last week's passage that the devil had put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. This is happening um, right, right as Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. So Jesus is aware of what's happening and he, it weighs heavy on him. And today we're going to move into the next portion of the evening, the next moment. And today we're going to look at the second to last interaction between Jesus and Judas. So my main goal for our time together is for us to see how Judas is is a reflection of you and me. And what we need to do if we understand that truth, that that Judas is a reflection of us, and the hope that we have as people, if we are like Judas. So my, my, uh, I have three points to correspond with my threefold goal for this morning. The first is the betrayer in your bulletin. The second is the descent into betrayal. And finally, the response to betrayal. So our first point, the betrayer. Here's how the story goes. I want to, what we read in the scriptures, I want to put into, uh, I just want to present before us again. So after Jesus washes his disciples' feet, he says one of them is going to betray him. Now, this is not good for setting the mood for their final meal together, right? He says 
one of you is going to betray me. And he says this, and the room is tense. And there is a sadness in the room because it's not some outsider coming in to disrupt things. This is someone among the disciples who is going to betray Jesus. So you can imagine just in this small room with a small group of men, they're wondering, what is going on here? And the text tells us that the disciple that Jesus loved is sitting next to Jesus. And we know him to be John, the the author of this gospel. And he's sitting the way that that they would sit back in the day was, uh, here, John, he's sitting so that his head is against, is right next to the chest of Jesus. And we're told in the text that Simon Peter, he, he motions to John, ask him, ask Jesus who the betrayer is. Now, there's a small, tiny detail uh, if you pay attention, he, sa- he doesn't ask him verbally. He just motions to John, the beloved disciple. And maybe in their years together, they got to know each other so well that they could communicate with gestures or looks. I think this is why this details in the scripture. It gives us a, a little detail. It gives us some insight into the dynamic of the disciples. And this little detail, I think, will help us understand the significance of what's happening in this passage. That Simon Peter is not communicating verbally, that he is gesturing, he's motioning to John. So John, he, he, he gets what Simon Peter is trying to ask, tell him. And John, John asks Jesus, he whispers to him, Jesus, who is it? Who's going to betray you? And Jesus He whispers back, watch, it's the one to whom I give this bread. And then Jesus, he takes this bread, this morsel, he dips it in the dish, and he hands it to Judas. And Judas, he doesn't know what just happened between John and Jesus. Judas, he grabs the bread without any suspicion of the exchange. And before Jesus gives it to him, before Jesus lets go of the bread, you can imagine Judas and Jesus' eyes, they lock. And Jesus says, what you're going to do, do it now. And this catches Judas off guard. And for a second, just maybe a split second, Judas, he freezes. Now, most of the disciples, they assumed he's going to be sent out to prepare for tomorrow's feast. And this is the last time that these 13 men, Jesus plus the 12 disciples, would be in the same room together. And just imagine, if you live with 12 other guys, you're going to get to know them fairly well. For three years, these, these 13 men, they lived together. They did ministry together. They listened to Jesus teach. They watched his miracles. They bickered and joked around like guys do. They shared the most intimate details of their lives. They supported each other, and they let each other down. They knew each other's quirks and insecurities. They knew each other's habits and mannerisms. They knew each other's favorite snacks or whatever. They they liked certain types of food or whatever it was that guys find out about each other when they live with each other for three years. And today's passage, it ends with Judas. He just goes walking off. And even then, most of the disciples have no idea. They couldn't have guessed that Judas was the one that would betray Jesus. When Jesus, he tells the disciples that one of them would betray him, all of them were shocked. All of them were completely taken off guard. We're told in another gospel that each of the disciples ask, Lord, is it me? Am I going to be the one that betrays you? 
Because no one thought that it would have been Judas. I pointed out the little detail that Peter motioned to John to ask Jesus who the betrayer was. They were able to communicate. The fact that they were able to communicate wordlessly is an indication of how close the disciples were. I think this is why this detail is in there. That there is an intimacy, there is a closeness, there is a deep knowledge of each other. And that includes this man, Judas. Because just like the rest of the disciples, for three years Jesus had lived, Judas had lived with Jesus' band of disciples. He was counted among them. He was one of them. And none of them could have imagined what Judas was capable of. When Jesus says that one of them would betray him, they didn't all turn to Judas. We sometimes get this image of, of Judas. He's just sitting in a corner with a dark cloud over him. He has this devious smirk on his face. That's not what happened when they did ministry together. Do you remember Jesus says, I'm sending you guys out to do, to do ministry. And, and everyone's casting demons out of people. And it's not like Judas was the only one whose demons didn't come out. It's not, a, not, it's not something that happened. No one suspected Judas, and in fact, he may have been the very last person that they suspected. Some commentators tell us that Judas was perhaps the most educated of the disciples, uh, the one with the highest social standing. Number one, he wasn't from Galilee, where most of the other disciples were. Galilee was a fishing town. He was from the more desirable city named Kirioth. This is where we get the name Judas Iscariot. If you hear the, uh, the similarity, Kiriath Iscariot. Kiriath was in the zip code with the better schools. It had better infrastructure. The roads were cleaner and better maintained. Judas was a guy that was more cultured. He was more knowledgeable. He was perhaps even the one that everyone looked up to. They're thinking, man, here is a guy that is stand-up. This is a guy that is respectable, now, I want us to consider this, because in this is a warning. Because we don't know who among us is capable of turning their back on the faith. We can't assume that someone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus, of Christ, of, a follower of Christ, is really following Jesus. Some of the most painful moments for For my wife and I, and this year at least, and, and for some of the leaders in this church, um, has been seeing some of our friends, people that were members of this church, walk away from the church and, and even the faith. And these are people that we loved, we still love them, we still talk to them, we served alongside them for years. We worshiped with them, they may have served you, they may have served your children, and we watched them walk away from the faith. Now, who can say that in a year, everyone that is here at IGC is still going to be following Jesus? Who can say that? We don't know. We had no idea that those who used to be here would walk away one day. This is the reality of those who profess to follow Christ. We don't even know if we ourselves are capable of turning our backs on what we say we believe today. 
So in other words, Judas is a reflection of you and me. Judas is a reflection of you and me. The guy that was respectable. The guy that people looked up to. The guy who walked right next to Jesus for three and a half years. Can you imagine if you walked next to the Son of God, if you heard every word he said, you would think there's no way, there's no way I would turn my back on him. When I spoke two weeks ago, I, I quoted the Soviet, or the, the Russian uh, author Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and he wrote this, The line separating good and evil passes not through states nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart. The line between good and evil passes right through Wei Chan's heart. The line between good and evil passes right through your heart. Now we look at this character Judas, and he's reviled as the most famous traitor in history. But we need to understand that the evil that was in his heart is in us as well. We have the same potential for hypocrisy that he did. Now, keep in mind that Judas wasn't always like this, perhaps. Maybe Judas didn't start out this way, but in time, Judas' heart, it became cold and it became hardened. And if some of us are really honest we might have been really close to that as well. Where our hearts were cold and hardened. Where even being amongst fellow believers, even listening to the singing, even sitting under the preaching of God's word, that didn't seem to do anything to us. In fact, it only seemed to harden us more. It only seemed to confirm our resolve to turn away. And perhaps even we're in that place right now. Perhaps you're in that place. Judas the betrayer is not, he's not the only one. Judas is a reminder that you and I can be just like him. Now our second point, the descent into betrayal. So there's been a lot written about why Judas did what he did. Um, And this is all speculation, because we're not told exactly why. Maybe Judas was greedy, and he wanted the money from the religious leaders, the 30 pieces of silver. Maybe he was disillusioned. Maybe he joined the mission of Jesus because he thought that Jesus was going to lead this military uh, upheaval, this, this political insurrection. And Maybe he was disappointed by who Jesus really turned out to be. Maybe it was something else that caused Judas to turn his back on, Je- on Jesus. We're given a few little clues here and there that might give us an idea, but we're not given an explicit reason in the scriptures. And I think this is to our benefit that we don't know. Because if we were given this little detail, we might say, this is an issue for Judas. It's not an issue for me. This is not a problem that I have. And if we have that response, what does it do? It gives us an excuse. We might say, I'm not greedy. Or we might say, I don't want the type of political upheaval that Judas wanted. If we, took that, if we had that response, it would give us a, a way to wiggle out because we don't identify with the details of Judas. Now, consider that, and perhaps this is an opportunity for us 
to be confronted with the reality of Judas in our own lives. If Judas is a reflection of you and me, then we need to think about what it is that makes us able to do what he did. Our text tells us that Satan entered into Judas after he took the morsel of bread. Now, how did Judas go from walking with Christ to being inhabited by Satan? How did he go from being a disciple of Christ to Satan entering him? To answer that question, I'm going to talk about the nature of sin briefly. And we could spend a long time, we could spend multiple months talking about what sin is and how it works and how we fall prey to it. Um, but just for the next few moments, I want to share a, a, few, a few insights that are pertinent to what I think is happening here in the text. And these are insights that I found in the, in the Puritan John Owen's book. Uh, the, the shortened version is... Uh, the the mortification of sin. This was this is a book that was put up by Crossway a few years ago. I highly highly recommend this book. It's um, gay thick. It'll take you a couple years to read through it because it's in 17th century language. But he wrote this book, and there's multiple books in this volume. And the book that I'm going to be taking these insights from are from the book entitled "The Nature, Power, Deceit, and Prevalency of Indwelling Sin in Believers." Subtitle, Together with its Ways of Working and Means of Prevention. So this is John Puritan, the 17th century Puritan, giving us some insights on sin. So he has a ton of stuff. I'm just going to give us three things that, that he says in the book, uh, although I, we could say much more. So three things about the nature of sin and how it works in us. So the first thing is this. Sin is always close at hand. Sin is clinging closely. Listen to this passage from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Do you hear what the writer of Hebrews is saying? He says, there is something that is clinging close to you. Right now, on me, I have a few layers of clothing Sin is that close to me. It's clinging to me. And this is what Owens writes. He says, It has a great, speaking of sin, sin has a great facility and easiness in the application of itself unto its work. It needs no doors to be opened unto. It has an intimacy with the soul. And therefore, in all that we do, sin does easily beset us. Again, 17th century English. What he's saying is this. You don't need to look for a small little crack in your life for sin to to enter into. Sin doesn't need to look around and try really hard and strategize to get into your life. All sin needs to do is wait, and it's going to get in. John Owen says it doesn't need a door to be opened. All sin needs to do is just be there in our presence because sin has an intimacy with us. Sin knows us. And we should know that sin has a greater power over us than we would ever dare imagine. We're inclined to it, and all that needs to happen in order for it to, to do its work in us is that we do nothing. We don't need to rem- we, so we don't need to remain vigilant we don't acknowledge that we're prone to give into sin, and therefore, if that's our attitude, then sin is going to come right in. 
That's how it was with Judas. Satan entered in. There was no struggle once Satan entered into Judas. So the second thing about sin is it's deceitful. Sin is deceitful. It lies to us about reality. It says that good is bad and bad is good. Sin makes half-true promises. It tells us that by doing something or not by, do, or by not doing something, we'll be content, we'll be satisfied, we'll be more secure, we'll be in a better position in life. And here's the thing about sin is that it often does fulfill its promises, but not all the way. It only fulfills the promises enough to make us ignorant of the harm that comes with it. Sin is deceitful. It will lie to us. It sneaks in with half-truths. So sin is close to us. Sin is deceitful. And finally, the third thing about sin is that it distorts our desires. Sin hardens us. So sin isn't just something that we do. Sin is something that shapes us. It makes us into something. Listen again to the author of Hebrews from Hebrews chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin deceives us, and sin hardens us. And this is one of the scariest things about sin is that we become numb to it. We don't know what happened to Judas that kicked all this off. Maybe it was a year into the ministry of Jesus that Judas became disillusioned. Maybe it was six months. Maybe it was three months before Jesus, Judas actually betrayed Jesus. We don't know exactly when it was. And in the same way, there's never a single event that turns our hearts cold toward Christ. But rather, it's a period sometimes a very long period of time, through a thousand points of action or inaction. It could be this tiny little thing that we don't pay attention to, that we just let go, and that in itself is not wrong. But over time, through a thousand points of action or inaction, sin turns our hearts cold toward Jesus and when we believe the lies of sin, when, we, when, when the deceitfulness springs up, we come up with justifications for making a compromise here or there. I, I started guitar lessons when I was in junior high, and I didn't want to learn guitar. I actually wanted to learn piano, and my parents said, uh, you're in junior high, you're too old to learn piano, so we're going to give you guitar lessons. We're going to give your brother piano lessons, but you're stuck with the guitar. So I got stuck with the guitar. And... And something that every guitar player, if you've ever played guitar, this is your experience, that one of the most difficult things that, ha- that, that you go through when you're learning guitar is you're pressing down on these strings, and it hurts. It hurts, right? And you can only press down for so long before you, you need to take a break. But over the months of continued playing, you just sit with the guitar, you play and you play, and sometimes... Uh, it, it hurts a lot, but you just press through it because I really want to learn the song. I w- really want to impress this person. Eventually, it becomes easier and easier so that you hardly even notice the pressure from the strings. Why? Because your fingers become calloused and 
talk to a, someone that talks, plays guitar regularly, ask to feel their fingers, it's going to be hard. There's going to be dead skin on there, perhaps. And this is how sin hardens us. When we first give in, there's, there's, there's the pain that comes along with it. But as we continue, it becomes easier and easier to do. We become less concerned about its effects on us. And eventually, we don't notice what it's done to us. And this is the hardening power of sin. It's never all at once. It's a little bit at a time. So how did Jesus, Judas move from Jesus' follower to betrayer? The same way that it happens to us which is little bit by little bit. So for those of us who are in this room, for those of us who might call IGC your home, we might be involved in a faith community. We might become familiar with the language and culture of this particular church. We can go through the rituals. And those in in themselves, those are great. I'm glad that happens But that's not enough. We need to know ourselves. We need to know that we can be just like Judas. We need to know that as Jesus followers, what are we called to? We're called to become more like Christ. We're called to become holy. And we need need to know that none of us are exempt from fighting against sin. Our text tells us that Satan entered Judas when he took the morsel of bread from Jesus And like I said earlier, there was no struggle. There wasn't any struggle. Satan just entered into him. And one of the most scary things that can happen to us is that we become used to the idea of sin in our lives. We might be okay today with things that maybe a year ago would not even cross our mind. One of the most gracious things that God can do to us is reveal to us the things in our lives that have been hardening our hearts. So the question for us to consider is this. Are there things that we're tolerating right now? They might be small, but are they hardening us? Are there things that we need to repent of? This is the descent into betrayal. The Bible gives us a warning. It says, Take heed lest you fall. It says, be careful of what can happen to you. You have no idea. If you don't pay attention, it's going to happen. Our final point, the response to betrayal. The text tells us when Jesus announced the impending betrayal, he was troubled. He was troubled in his spirit. It wasn't just that Jesus was bothered, but his very soul was shaken. Look at verse 21. The word troubled is the same word that's used in John 11. If you remember the story, his friend Lazarus has died. Jesus is troubled when Lazarus is dead. And in verse 18, Jesus says that the betrayer will lift his heel against him. The imagery we're supposed to have is one of a horse kicking against someone with its hind legs. If you've ever watched videos of, I've seen, I don't know how, I just came to realize, how is it that I came to watch videos of horses kicking people on YouTube? I don't know. But you may have seen that before. That is going to leave a mark. That hurts. And that's how much the betrayal of Judas hurts Jesus. 
Even though Jesus knew that it would happen, Jesus wasn't cool and nonchalant about it. He was tore up by it. As much as the death of a friend would break the heart of Jesus, Jesus' heart was broken by the death of another friendship. Jesus was troubled in spirit. His very soul was shaken. Now, I want us to consider the heart of Jesus here. Even though Jesus knows what's in Judah's heart, Jesus still cares for him. And this hurt Jesus not because this was an act of strategic, uh, strategic working against Jesus and his ministry on Judas' part. This was ultimately relational. The betrayal of Judas was so painful because it betrayed a relationship. Because this friend that Jesus had loved, and even at this point still loved at this moment, he's turning against him. The sin of Judas was the betrayal of a friendship. Michael Card, the songwriter, puts it this way. Why did it have to be a friend who chose to betray the Lord? Only a friend, friend can betray a friend. A stranger has nothing to gain. And only a friend comes close enough to ever cause so much pain. Jesus, in this moment, is filled with pain. And yet, yet, even now, Jesus loves Judas. If we look at the t- details of our text, Judas is seated at the place of honor. John, the beloved disciple, is sitting at the right hand of Jesus, and Judas is sitting at the left of Jesus. He's sitting at a place of honor, and Jesus gives Judas a morsel of bread, which was a way to honor him. It wasn't just a, a sign. It wasn't just an indicator. In this day, in that culture, to take a morsel from the table and to dip it in the dish was a sign of, of special friendship. It was a sign of intimacy that you would dip the bread into a dish and feed it to your friend. And Jesus, he's being intentional about his actions at the table. By giving him the bread, Jesus is saying to, Jesus, to Judas, even now, Judas, even in this very moment, even though I see right through you, even though I see the worst of what's in your heart, I still want to be your friend. I still love you. I want to restore you. This is the heart of Jesus. This is not just a story that fills in the gap between Jesus' ministry and his suffering. This is the real heart of Jesus. So sin had done his work in Judas. Sin had actually disintegrated Judas. But there was one final chance to receive the love of Jesus. And maybe for a moment, maybe for a split second, Judas even considered it. Maybe he, Judas knew what a morsel of bread meant. And maybe in that moment, he thought, maybe, maybe I'll turn back. J.R.R. Tolkien uh, another Lord of the Rings reference. He reflected on, on one of the most painful scenes for him in the Lord of the Rings saga. And this is what he says about a scene from the Two Towers. So someone asked him, uh, you wrote the book, and sometimes you might read, read through it again. And they asked him, uh, what moment from this saga, what moment sticks out to you? What moment is difficult for you to read? And this is what Tolkien said. 
For me, perhaps, the most tragic moment in the tale comes when Sam fall, fall, fails to note the complete change in Gollum's tone and aspect. His repentance is blighted and all Frodo's pity is wasted. So what's happening here is um, there is Gollum, the, the, who used to be Schmeagol, and uh, he was profoundly corrupted by the ring, uh, the ring that the Lord of the Rings is referencing. And, and Frodo, as he as he embarks on his quest to destroy the to destroy the ring, he, he Frodo takes Gollum in, and in a way he becomes Gollum's master. And in time, uh, Gollum he comes to see that Frodo he, Frodo he's a good master. He is um, he has a good heart. Frodo treats him well. And the scene that Tolkien refers to, this is the almost repentance aspect of Gollum. And this is uh, when for a moment, Gollum, he, he almost returns to who he used to be. When he almost returns to become Schmeagol, the innocent hobbit. But in the end, he's finally lost for good. And I'm not sure if J.R. Tolkien had this in mind when he wrote, when he had, when he wrote the scene, if he had the scene of Judas' betrayal of John 13, but it is parallel, whether intentionally or intentionally, unintentionally. So this is a scene where Gollum, he, he watches Frodo and Samwise as they're sleeping, and he's caught between who he used to be, Schmeagol, and who he is now, Gollum. And this is what the book uh, Two Towers says. Gollum looked at them. A strange expression passed over his lean, hungry face. The gleam faded from his eyes, and they went dim and gray, old and tired. A spasm of pain seemed to, twi- to twist him, and he turned away, peering back up toward the pass, shaking his head as if engaged in some interior debate. Then he came back, and slowly, putting out a trembling hand, very cautiously he touched Frodo's knee. But almost the touch was a caress. And listen to this. For a fleeting moment, for a fleeting moment, could one of the sleepers have seen him, they would have thought that they beheld an old, weary hobbit, shrunken by the years that has carried him far beyond his time, beyond friends and kin, in the fields and streams of youth, an old, starved, pitiable thing. Tolkien, he gives us this image of this shrunken down, disintegrated golem. And for a moment, he sees the hobbits. He reaches out. And for a tiny second, something in him changes. And then this is what happens next. But at that touch, Frodo stirred and cried out softly in his sleep. And immediately, Sam was wide awake. The first thing he saw was Gollum pawing at his master, as he thought. And then Samwise, he has this this exchange with Gollum. He asks, what are you doing? You're going to hurt him. And then in that moment... Continuing on with the text, Gollum withdrew himself, and a green light flickered under his heavy lids. Almost spider-like, he looked now, crouched back on his bent limbs with his protruding eyes. So Gollum, he returns to become Gollum. Schmeagol is gone. And the final sentence in this passage, the fleeting moment had passed beyond recall. Now, there are actually two places in the Lord of the Rings saga that make reference to this, to this 
little bit of clarity and sobriety that Gollum possessed. If you've watched a movie, you might remember he's, he's, he looks awful. He, he, he's just a, a, a gray creature that seems to have nothing but evil in him. But that wasn't always the case. In the first book, The Fellowship of the Ring, uh, this is, and this is before the scene I just read to you, this is what Tolkien writes of Gollum. There was a little corner of Gollum's mind that was still his own, and light came through it as through a chink in the dark, a light out of the past. It was actually pleasant, I think, to hear a kindly voice again, bringing up memories of wind and trees and sun on the grass and such forgotten things. Now this is Tolkien speaking. He says, What made this scene so heartbreaking to me is perhaps... Gollum had one last chance to go back to what he used to be. But then he let the moment pass. And this is Judas. He had one last chance. Our passage closes with Judas walking into the night. There's no turning back for him. This is the end for him. Now, the theological word we use for turning back is repent. To repent means that we turn around. We turn around from where we're headed and we head back to Jesus. Why? Because sin is ultimately relational. Sin is not just us offending a distant deity. Sin is the fracturing of a relationship with our Creator who loves us. Sin is a fracturing of our relationship with our Father. And when God calls us to repent, it's with the desire that a relationship be restored. And the only way that our relationship can be restored is if the penalty for our sin is paid. And Jesus paid the penalty when he was killed on the cross. So instead of seeing us as traitors and sinners, Jesus can call us a friend. Can you imagine that in, the, in that moment with Judas, Jesus sees the worst of Judas, and yet he still loves him? And can you imagine Jesus looking into the darkest, ugliest part of you and saying, I still love you? Because this is what he did for Judas, and this is what he does for us today. To repent is not just to feel bad. To repent is to turn back to the one who loves you most. And I want us to take this to heart. I want us just for the next few moments to be open to what it is that God wants to reveal to us. If you remember what Paul writes, he says, it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. Do you believe that God is kind? If you believe that, then you can say, I'm going to come before you, God. Let me open myself up. Let me reveal myself to you. I'm going to let you see into the deepest, ugliest part of me. And do with me what you will.
And you can know for certain that he will not destroy you. He's going to apply a balm to your wounds. He's going to cut to heal. Flannery O'Connor, she, she, she says this, Grace must wound before it heals. Will you allow God to wound you so that he would heal you? And just for the next few moments, think, meditate, pray. Um, there's going to be some silence here, so um, if you're not comfortable with it, learn to be comfortable with it. Uh, listen to Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous weight in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. So make this a prayer. Sometimes we don't know what to pray. And if that's where we are, take this as a prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. You can just say, God, that's all I'm going to pray right now. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous weight in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Would you submit yourself to God in this moment and say, God, search me, search me. The psalmist in Psalm 19, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my God, my rock and my redeemer. Will you pray? Father, search us, look into our hearts, and when you do, you, you will see that there is evil in us, you will see the reflection of Judas, but that is not what we're left to. You also clothe us with the righteousness and perfection of Christ, God. I pray that for those of us who are still on the outside looking in, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them. I pray that you would break the, the hardened heart. I pray that you would crack us open, God. I pray that we would, like the other 11 disciples, that we would remain close to you. I pray that you would hold us fast. I pray that there would be no trace of Judas left in us. Do your good work in us, God. We trust that you will do this because you are a good God. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Redeemer. Amen.